Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, we are continuing in our series called Encounters with Jesus, looking at some stories in the New Testament, in the Gospels, um, about everyday encounters, but how they have had extraordinary, had an extraordinary impact on the immediate lives of those around. Turn with me to John chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through to verses 44. So it's quite a chunk of scripture. From verses 17 onwards, um, it will come up on the screen behind me. John 11 verses 1. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for the glory of God, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and you want to go back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go then, so we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus was already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But now I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister, Mary, aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her 
noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied, and Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Footnote, the King James shortens that bit and just says, he stinketh. <laughs> then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Then he said, when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Amen. So today we're looking at the story of Lazarus, his sickness, death, and his eventual resurrection. It is an encounter with Jesus that is only recorded in the, in the Gospel of John. And what's interesting, I think the story resonates with us today because the subheading of the story is death, the main heading of the story is life, but the subheading of death connects with all of us, doesn't it? You think of our COVID season of life and how we were measuring the impact of COVID. It was based upon what? The daily death toll. You think in modern entertainment and media, books and films, uh, commentators say now are written with much more of a bleaker outcome. You think of the Midnight Library by Matthew Haig, if anyone has read that, following the story of Nora Seed, this lady who is kind of in a midlife crisis, so to speak, ending up taking her own life, and the confusion that surrounds death for her, the wider family, she ends up in a midnight library trying to figure out, are there other, could she have lived other lives? We think sadly more personally of Archie Battersby's parents, don't we, in the last few months in the media. This kind of strange story of the hospital thinking that he is actually dead whilst he's alive on ventilators, the parents thinking alive and he is not dead, and this legal battle to keep Archie alive. You see, death grips the nation. We read about it all the time. We watch films about it. Goodness gracious, my son's at that age now where he's playing video games that are centered around it. And I want to look at this story now by considering it from two points of view, or two faith groups. I don't want to assume this morning that everybody here loves Jesus and subscribes to the biblical's understanding of death and life. So I want to look at it from two points of view, from the idea of a secular faith point of view. And that's the point of view of this. 
that after you die, that's it. Nothing else. Full stop. Unconscious sleep. No more life. No more love. That's the kind of the secular worldview. But I also want to look at it from a Christian perspective, which is the idea that though there is death, actually, afterwards, we have not only new life, but we also have new and more love. And I'm going to do this in three ways this morning. I'm going to think about the confusion in death, regardless of your faith group. I want to look at how the Christian has incredible resources to face death and sickness. And then finally, we're going to look at how for the Christian or those who believe in Jesus can actually look forward to life after death. So first of all, confusion in death. Again, it causes confusion regardless of your faith position. Uh, It's hard to pin down the position of the secular worldview because so many people write it in different ways. But I think we have a wonderful resource to help us, and that's the Lion King. Has anyone seen the Lion King? The great circle of life. The lion eat the antelope. The antelope eat the grass. The lion die and become part of the grass. And so you have this great circle of life. And while this holds down from a head knowledge point of view that we can, perhaps a secular worldview can subscribe to this, uh, Peter Croft of Boston College says, that's okay, but there are, there's a fundamental problem with this that you have to deal with. And he tells it through the story of someone in his family in his family, they had um, this lady who had a seven-year-old son. <clears throat> the seven-year-old son's three-year-old younger cousin passed away. The mother, a secular person subscribing to this worldview, was faced one day with a question from her son who asked her, where has our cousin gone? The mother, fair play, wanted to remain full of integrity. <clears throat> Didn't say he's going up to heaven or anything like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. She says to him, well, listen, son, he's died and he's been buried. He's now fertilizing the soil around it, and he's helping food to grow and plants, and so he's fertilizer for for this new life. He's part of the ground, and now he's part of our lives, to which the seven-year-old boy runs out of the room screaming, I don't want to be fertilizer, Mom. You see, she handled it from a head knowledge point of view, but she couldn't deal with two deep, deep human intuitions about death that we all know in our hearts. And the first one is this, is that death is not natural. One person says, but death is only a pleasing sleep. But in response, the person says, listen, my friend, death is neither pleasing nor sleep. If someone involuntarily renders you violently unconscious against your will, that would be considered a crime. And so death is both a murderer and a thief. It's not natural. The second deep intuition of the human heart is that it's not right. It is wrong. Do not gently go into the night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. A seven-year-old knows in their heart that death isn't right. They don't want to be fertilizer. And we know this in our own life, whether it's the death of a person, whether it's the death of a marriage, whether it's the death of a season of life that was good and it has stopped. And you know you didn't want it to stop. So the secular faith teaches that there is nothing after death. Whilst you understand this in your head, You know in your heart that's not quite right. And sure, sure, 
you might educate a seven-year-old so that when they become an adult, they can handle it with intellectual frameworks, but you can never eradicate the deep inner intuitions. But listen, even if you are a Christian this morning, let's also be honest, whilst you might have a head knowledge on how to understand and cope with death and sickness per se, there is still confusion surrounding it, and we see it in the passages. We see that Lazarus is sick, and he eventually dies. And that often conjures up the first confusion around, is God punishing me? Have I done something wrong? Is God displeased with me? The second question that uh, death can conjure up for the Christian is around the purpose of it. In verses 4, 14, and 15, Jesus tells them that the purpose of Lazarus' illness and ultimate death would be for the glory of God. I mean, get your head around that. Jesus tells them that for their sake, he was glad he was not there. And our problem for Christians is that often we need to find meaning, don't we? What's the purpose? What's causing this? Why is this happening? And for lack of purpose can often cause us to maybe go astray. There's also confusions around the path that sickness and death often takes us on. In verse 7, we see that. John writes that Jesus talked about going back to Judea. And the disciples were confused because that was where he was going to be stoned. And sickness and death can often lead us onto pathways we're not quite... Do we really want to go back into that? Do we really want to go there? And we can often have the attitude of Thomas, fine, let's just go that we might die with him. In other words, what's the point? What is the point? We're just going to die anyway. And then we have finally confusion or questioning around timing. You know, when Jesus found out about Lazarus being sick, did he go straight away? You waited two more days. And I think we are, as Christians, all naturally impatient in our days of trial, aren't we? We want instant solutions, instant gratification. So you see there is confusion in death, whether it's to do with deep intuitions of the heart, but also confusions around the items surrounding it. What's going on? Why? When? How? But I want to say to you that the Christian this morning has an incredible resource to deal with death or has incredible resources to deal with death. And what we find for the Christian worldview is this, and if you are a Christian this morning, that in your most difficult moments in life, we can draw upon Scripture, we can draw upon Christ, we can draw upon God, and we can tap into unequaled resources. And the first one is this. In verses 3 it says, or we know that... Regardless of what is going on, we have a resource that knows that we are always loved. Jesus loved Lazarus despite his sickness and death. There was no punishment. He wasn't trying to teach him a lesson in that regard. Jesus wasn't trying to punish Lazarus. It was no sign that God was displeased with Lazarus. No, he loved him. And paradoxically, if you have experienced sickness, death, or again, whether that is a person or whether that is a season of life, you know that actually, paradoxically, it can draw your attentions away from the things of the world and onto God, can't it? Uh, In my previous employment, I used to work from here to maybe where the wall is from a gentleman by the name of Andrew Marchington. And every day, we worked together for two and a half, three years nearly, and he used to go to the gym, DW Fitness, every day. And he 
Friday, I know exactly what he was wearing. Pink shirt, blue jeans, black shoes. Matthew, I'll see you in an hour and a half. He had an hour and a half lunch break. He was mid-50s. I never saw him again. He had a cardiac arrest on the rowing machine, and we got a call at 3 o'clock saying he'd passed away. And I remember that moment just, just it was so tragic. It did, it did incredible things for the business and reorienting how we saw things. But also in my own heart, even though I snapped back into it momentarily, just reminding myself what is really important working in the business world. I don't want to be in my mid-50s passing away from cardiac arrest because I've had a lifetime of stress. That's not what I want. Actually, I want Christ in my business and in my workplace. It has incredible ways of knowing that we're loved in God and reorienting. But also, in verses 4, 14, and 15, we have the resource of knowing there is purpose. You know, when I worked at McDonald's many years ago, which I think is the benchmark for any successful person in the world, if you haven't worked at a fast food chain, then you, you, know, you haven't made it in life. So McDonald's, where at the end of every day we had a waste chart. We had to record all of our wastage and to go in the bed and we had to tally it up. But I want to say to you, in the economy of God, there is no waste chart. Nothing is wasted. God isn't going at the end of the day, oh, I didn't account for between 11 and 12 of Bob's life. Yeah, we'll just put that to one side. No, because in Christ we have purpose. Lazarus' death, even though he didn't know it, had purpose. It was to bring glory to God. Jesus said, this is purposeful to bring glory to me. Now, Lazarus didn't know it. You go back to the Old Testament, you can read a whole book uh, called Job. He never knew the purpose of his suffering and, uh, and his pain and grief. And listen, you might never know the purpose of your pain and your suffering and your grief. What I can tell you this, Christian, is you have an incredible resource to know there's no waste chart. Under the sovereignty of God, everything has purpose and meaning. But listen, like a child, you may not understand that, but you're called to trust. But what a resource that is. No wastage. You also have the resource of presence. Jesus was present in verse 21 and verse 28 with Martha and Mary. Despite knowing what will happen, he accepted their questions. He was in the moment. And listen, I love what I love about Scripture is all modern-day writing is just catching up with what the Bible has already said many, many thousand years ago. You can read all the literature on business leadership. Jim Collins, Daniel H. Pink, Simon Sinek, and they're saying the most effective leaders in today's society are leaders that are present, no distractions, phones are put away, they're there and with you, and they're full of empathy. They're the most successful leaders for our generation and will be the next 20 years. And here we have Jesus Christ modeling that. All notifications turned off. The crowd is behind him. Yes, Martha. And you have that, Christian. The very presence of God. We want to long for the presence of God, don't we? Do you remember the last time you had the very presence of God? And you want it again. You have that incredible resource. Right now in this moment. In verse 35, we have the present, the resource of empathy. We have God weeping with them. We have God groaning, Jesus, sorry, rather, groaning in the spirit and weeping with them despite knowing what was going to happen. It's the only place in the New Testament we have the word weep there. Shedding of tears, crying. Now listen, in our modern day funerals, they're very domesticated, aren't they? And particularly in our Western civilization, we're no, we know it's the stiff upper lip. I'm not going to be the first to cry. You know, might walk into, I'm going to let someone else, I'm not going to be the first. You know, in this time, 
uh, families would have employed professional whalers. They would go, to get the crowd going. And so everyone would be crying. We're going to put that on our footnote for next week's service. 9.30, and just come on in, just start crying, see what it does. I'm not going to go first, not me. Yeah, there. But they also had professional musicians to play dirge music to kind of help with the morning process. And here we have Jesus fully involved, weeping. Now, footnote, I'm not going to tell you what he's weeping about just yet, because you're probably thinking he's weeping because Lazarus has died. Hold that thought for a moment. But the point I want you to see here is that Jesus is very present. You know, in our times of trouble and our times of trial, we don't want pat answers, do we? Has someone ever said that, yeah, had done that to you? you? Are you okay? Actually, I'm not. And you pour out your heart. Don't worry, tomorrow's a new day. They, oh, I just want, you know, actually sometimes you don't want an answer, do you? You just want someone to come alongside you, put their arm around you and say, I don't have an answer, but I want to say, you're not alone. You're not alone. Resource of empathy. But we also have the resource of a champion. You see, Jesus was willing to venture into unsafe territory for the one that he loved. Go back to the place that you were stoned. Imagine having someone on your side 24-7, your champion there to go with you. You see, my friend, the Christian this morning has incredible resources to deal with sickness, death, pain, suffering, because they have Jesus Christ of Nazareth, an empathetic savior who can honestly say, I am with you. The secular worldview doesn't have this because there's nothing otherworldly that the secular worldview can draw upon other than the immediacy of the moment. But let me tell you this, not only does the Christian have incredible resources, the Christian also has something way more powerful, which is life in death. Now go with me on a thought experiment here. Two women, they get given exactly the same job. They're, to, they're on a manufacturing process in a factory. They're taking product A, putting it onto product B. It's the same job. They work in the same setting, same lighting, same natural light. They work the same shifts, have the same lunch breaks, finish at the same time. But the first lady is going to get paid £30,000 a year for doing that job. And the second lady is going to get paid three million pounds a year for doing that job. That's the only difference. And after four weeks, they get together. They're sat in the lunchroom, and lady one's going, oh, what a horrible job. I can't stand this. It's boring. It's horrible. We're just, it's tedious. The lady number two looks at her and goes, what are you talking about? I love this job. Best job I've ever had. She looks at her all confused. You see, our hope for the future radically changes the way we interpret the present. Our hope for the future radically changes the way that we interpret the present. The secular person has no future hope. And so you interpret the present in a particular way. This is all that there is. And you see, because death is neither right nor natural, our ultimate longing, I would argue, is not life after death. It's not life after death that we really want. The human heart wants love after death. This is what we most desire. 
We want love. You and I are built for love without parting, and death makes us part. You see, in our Christian worldview, it says that after you die, you remain a person. Now, other worldviews and religions say that after you die, there might be new life, for sure. You might reincarnate. There might be, you know, you might come back. You might go into kind of a, a larger pool. I won't go into the details, but it's only in Christianity that you come back as a person. Because the afterlife of the Christian is a personal one filled with love, not like it is today, not like a drain pipe that's clogged up and every now and then a bit of water drips out. You know, we feel this in our relationships, don't we? We know we love our spouses, we know we love our children, we know we love perhaps our neighbors. You know, and then we do things, we act in a way where in the moment we, we, we realize, oh, why did I do that? Like, I really do love you, but I can't believe I just did that again. And, and then we perhaps two hours go by and we go back and apologize. We wake up the next morning and we say, I'm not going to do that today because I love them. And you do love them. There's no doubting your love. But something happens again that day. Folks, the Christian forever is going to be unfiltered love. No morning regrets. No thinking, oh, I'm sorry. The pipe is completely unblocked. Love is flowing out constantly, constantly, constantly. And we have that forever because it's love after life and life after life that we really want after death. No filter, no restriction. But how do we get this hope then? How can we access this? You know, I imagine, uh, I imagine people like Alex Ferguson, you know, the old Manchester United manager, Maybe Jeff Bezos of Amazon, Bill Gates of Microsoft, maybe even, what's his name, Steve Jobs at, at, at Apple, these kind of, or other people, these kind of you know, head figures that have taken almost something from an embryotic stage and built these massive empires. I, I, have, this, I have this kind of, my imagination tells me there must have been at some point when at the height of their power, when money was flowing in, they employed thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. They had, a, they had a big boardroom meeting, and there was a disagreement. They were being challenged on something. No, Bill, that's not the way to go. No, Steve, no, you know. And I imagine this kind of argument going on, you know, maybe five, ten minutes. And eventually, one of them just goes, I've had enough. And they stand up, and as the founder of that company, they say, I am Microsoft. I am Apple. I am Manchester United. I am Amazon. You're going to do what I tell you. Jesus stands up in verse 25 and he says, I am the resurrection and life. I created this. I wrote this script. This is my play. I am the resurrection. I am the life, my friend. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. I own this. This is me. Doesn't that move you? Then Jesus says, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God in verse 40? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, 
Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. One commentator says it this way, we are so thankful that Jesus says Lazarus before he says come out. Because if he had just said come out, the whole world, all these dead bodies would have risen from the grave. Praise the Lord, he just said Lazarus. But what we see something compelling here is that the grave yields its tenants through the power of Jesus' word. But it's good and well hearing what Jesus said about death and resurrection, but how is this power for us? Going back to verses 33, it says there that Jesus was greatly troubled. You know, the actual proper interpretation of that is that Jesus was angry. That actually, it would, he was, there was this anger coming from Jesus. And as an overflow of this anger, he starts weeping. Now, a lot of commentators say often we think that he's weeping because Lazarus is dying. But actually, that's not the case because he knows he's going to rise again in a couple of days. <clears throat> he's not weeping at that. He's not angry. He's not weeping at that. But what is Jesus angry at? Well, again, is he angry at Lazarus? No, because we know that he loved Lazarus. Well, is he angry at God because of what had happened, the Father in heaven who he's praying to? No, because he knows the purpose of it all was for his glory. What is Jesus angry at? Folks, Jesus is angry at death itself. He is angry at this very problem. Folks, we have this in relationships. My wife and I do this. Often we will have a disagreement... And it escalates very quickly when it becomes not about the item itself, but becomes about each other. Have you ever had that? Yeah? I'm seeing some smiley faces. Nah, just Matthew Ashton. (laughs) You're not even qualified to preach about what we're arguing with your wife. You know, it very very quickly becomes personal, and it doesn't become about the thing. You know, Jesus is angry about the thing itself. This was not part of the original plan. Love shouldn't make us part, and we are parting. Don't like this. I'm angry at this. Folks, you should be angry at death. You should be angry at sickness. You should be angry at injustice. You should be angry at poverty. It's these things that stir us in our culture to do things, right? Not complacency or apathy, but some strong emotion towards the right thing. Now listen. Lazarus had another funeral. But when we look at Jesus and we look at this parable, we see it pointing to something greater. Because only a few verses or chapters on, we see that Jesus Christ going to the cross. We see him dying and being crucified. We see him rising again. And we see him being ascended. And what, Jesus, what Lazarus couldn't do is what Jesus did do is that by dying, rising, resurrection, and ascending, Jesus blew a hole through death. He took the keys, he looked at the door, and he didn't use the keys, and he just blew the door down. I don't need the keys. Why? I am the resurrection, and I am the life. Church, whoever believes in me, even though they die, they will never die but live. Do you believe this? 
Is this your hope for the future? Because if it is, you will radically interpret your present day very differently. So how can we respond to this message? Well, if you're here today as a secular person and would confess to have no faith in Jesus, tap into this resource. You have a wealth of resource in Jesus Christ. Come and see me afterwards. And if you want to pray together, we can pray. You can come up and say, Matthew, I want to believe in this. And we would do that gladly. See me, see Matthew, see some of us on the front row here, the leaders at the church. You say, I want to believe in this today. And resurrection and life is yours. Not because of what you've done, but because of who Jesus is. And then finally, if you are a Christian, what can you do? Gaze. Enter into God's presence. Remember the hope and resource that you have. Not in your head. You know, when the Bible talks about forgetting and remembering, it's not talking about doing a test and it's in your head and you've got to write it down because we all would remember. Oh, yes, I remember those doctrines. It's talking about your heart. When you're in those moments of life, remember in your heart who Jesus is, what he has done. Because the Christian can be rest assured that whatever circumstances they find themselves in, they're under the sovereignty of God. Charles Wesley says this in his hymn, Christ the Lord is risen today, earth and heaven in chorus say. Raise your joys and triumphs high, sing ye heavens and earth reply. Love's redeeming work is done, fought the fight, the battle won. Death in vain forbids him rise. Christ has opened paradise. Lives again our glorious King, where, O death, is now thy sting. Once he died our souls to save, where is thy victory, boasting grave? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to us? Lord, death is a sensitive subject. Whether we are here this morning as a believer in you or not, we know in our heart the pain of sickness and death, whether that's of a loved one, a season of life, a relationship breakdown, a business gone wrong. Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to us? Would you draw close to us, not by our efforts or by our righteous acts, but because you desire to draw near this morning. We'd ask that you would come. Come and be with us. Father, as your people, we ask that you would send the Spirit now. Help us to interact with this. Help us to know this resource that we have. And may we respond this morning. May we respond in the way that you call us to respond, whether that is singing, whether that is confessing, whether that is repenting and believing for the first time, that you did rise again from the grave. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.